let's begin. Ready? Recite your baseline. Good evening Earthlets and welcome once again to another episode of Recite Your Baseline. Tonight I'm joined by Metal Madman Nocturne Wolf. I've got Jamie and Bob from the band in with me. Hi guys. How are you there? How are you doing? So we're going to talk about their illustrious career in the world of metal uh, and their rise to fame through the last few years in Glasgow. So there's a few members of the band that aren't with us tonight boys. Who's missing? So obviously as you've said it's myself Jamie who plays rhythm guitar. Uh, we've got Bob here on lead vocals. Hello. Uh, we've got three other members. We have Chris Horn, who plays lead guitar. Uh, we have Mark MacArthur, who plays drums, and Stephen Scott, who plays bass. So we're a five-piece. Cool. And uh, how long have you guys been playing for? Funny question that this point came up uh, a few days ago, that coming this August, that'll be our five-year anniversary of our first gig. Wow. We've had a few changes since then. I remember the first gig, I'm pretty sure I was there. You were there, I remember that. That was the one down the stairs in, yep. um, uh, what was, was called? It the Hugging Pint. Hugging Pint, the very one. Yeah, it happened to be, uh, that was my 30th birthday. So 30th birthday all kicked off from there. That was a great gig, I remember it well. So amongst you then, who's the main writer for the band? In terms of musically, I would say starting off it was myself. We started off as a single guitar band, so the music kind of fell mostly to myself. The previous singer, David Yates, he would contribute a lot of the lyrical ideas and also the vocal melodies because at the time I really wasn't confident doing that. And as things progressed, obviously then Bob came in and then was happy to add his style to it. Yeah, when I came in, most of the lyrics were written, but some of them weren't, and some of them weren't archived on paper. So I was going through small videos trying to decipher what the lyrics actually were. And uh, me and Jamie just decided we'd kind of write fresh lyrics ourselves so probably half the album we'd kind of rewritten the, the lyrics for that to try and suit my style you know and so who's the boss who actually has the final say or do you share the load between you i would say everything's shared we're quite um lucky in that sense that there's not really anybody that has to put the hammer down and say this is happening or that's not happening and i think my nature personally i kind of drive most of the stuff that happens in the band but that's just purely because it, that, that's just the way i am i like to do things 100 percent so Generally, most of the stuff will be driven from myself, but I like to take ideas from everybody. You know? Yeah, I was just going to say as well, since Chris, the second guitar player, has come into the band, his contribution has been massive. He's really pushed me as a guitar player, and he's brought a lot of really, really cool ideas. His knowledge of music is so vast that he can add in some great melodies, harmonies, musical ideas. It's brilliant. I have to say, I've enjoyed watching the videos on YouTube that you've got of the skills because he's an incredible guitarist and I thought you were good. You are good, but he, is, he looks as if he's another level. Oh, 100% I do agree. Which is incredible. I mean, it's, yeah, you're really lucky to have such talented musicians between you. And so, is there any troublemakers in the band? Who's the guy that sort of winds you up or can cause a wee bit of a problem now and again? We've all got them. I think, yeah, I've got to put my hands up. I'm probably the, the biggest <laughs> troublemaker, I would say. Because I just typical vocalist. It, well, correct. Because I just come in and say to the guys, right, we're doing this gig on that date, and they're like, oh, right, okay, that's fair enough. Well, there always has to be a driver, someone pushing the band to do stuff like that. Yes. And uh, who's the eye candy in the band? Who did the chicks fling their knickers at? Brilliant. I think. 
<laughs> I think. I mean, I don't know if you've been to a lot of heavy metal gigs. <laughs> But careful, Jamie. <laughs> I think what I would have to say is that in a lot of these heavy metal gigs, it's fairly swayed towards males. Yeah, I was, I was teasing. <laughs> um, but you know, you do get guys, you know, throwing up their knickers, you know, and that's fine. <laughs> you know, we're an all-inclusive band. Uh, that's cool, man. Right, so let's have a wee listen to one of your tracks then, and give the audience a wee idea of just exactly how metal you boys are. So we'll start off on a track called Gunslinger. Do you want to just maybe talk about how that came about and the story behind it before we start? So Gunslinger is the name from Stephen King's Dark Tower. Of course. Um, something which I know you're familiar yeah, with. Indeed. Yeah. Um, so that the, the concept came, I think at the time it was written again by the previous singer David Yates and he, he was a big fan of the Dark Tower. So he penned all the lyrics for it, and uh, that's what it's about. Okay, well let's have a quick blast now then. Here's Gunslinger.
And that was Gunslinger by the mighty Nocturne Wolf. Great track, boys. Really loved that. Thank you. So just to change the subject to me, but when did you realise... I'll, I'll go to you first, Jamie. When did you first realise that you wanted to make music? It was a, There was a kind of time period between primary school and high school where I thought, I really need to take up a hobby. You know, it was kind of changing life. And I thought it'd be quite good to go and do something different. And I thought, you know what, I might, might pick up the guitar. So it wasn't really inspired by anything. It was just a choice. So went home, I got a guitar, played it, didn't really like it, sat in the corner for a while, as I think a lot of musicians well, do. Well, funny enough, I was exactly the same. I started with a guitar and had it for about a month and went, oh, I can't do this, this is too hard. <laughs> Keyboards look a lot easier. Yeah. Well, that's fair. <laughs> the, I think the thing about a keyboard is it it makes more sense because uh, it's yeah, linear, yeah. whereas a guitar's a bit Absolutely. more 3D, so it's a bit more tricky. But anyway, so... I had the guitar, wasn't really that bothered, and then a couple of years later, you kind of start to go through puberty. You start to get into music. You realise, oh, this is this is quite cool. And the power of it. The power, exactly the power. And you start to listen to bands, and you think, this is really really cool. And you become obsessed with it. I then heard Metallica, and it was actually from an old uh, one of my f- uh, friends from school. His dad was a punk, and he was right into punk music. But he let me listen to a lot of the punk covers that Metallica did. Right. And, I, and I, I'd never heard anything like this. Mm-hmm. The, the really overly distorted guitars, guitar solos, really aggressive. I remember thinking, these guys are really angry. And I'm angry, but I wasn't angry at anything. I just thought, <laughs> oh, I'm loving this. Yeah. And that, that, I think that sparked the love of that heavy sound. And I went back to the acoustic guitar and I got a guitar tutor who was a classical guy um, and he was amazing he was fantastic but unfortunately I just wanted to play really heavy rock and he just wouldn't cut it uh, and eventually I thought I'm gonna have to do this myself so I just self-taught. What about you Bob have you always been a singer or is this something that's come to you in later life or how did that happen? No not always when I was quite younger maybe five I started playing the violin believe it or not and um, I was in school in Birmingham it was called the Suzuki method so basically the violin teacher had made a tape with all the songs in the book played already and we would listen to the tape and basically play it back by ear. So my music talent is basically from listening and being able to play back. So you've not been trained in a traditional sense where you can actually read music as all No, I played in the orchestras because I, 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 was, I was quite good at it. I played for about 10 years so I played in various different orchestras and I found out one day because I went for an audition with it was the Birmingham Youth Orchestra and it was a blind audition and he obviously had to sight read it right. and I just said to the guy before we started I, said, I, I can't do this I, I said if you play it I'll play it back to you and uh, he went well you can, you're not joining then so it was like okay yeah. and I loved it but I hated it because it was boring I didn't want to go to school with a violin I, I played the alto saxophone for a while pretty well I played some drums always wanted to play guitar and never got around to it and then I went to school in London the uh, last couple of years of high school walked into a room and I heard these boys playing guitars that were distorted and I'd never heard this sound before and just fell in love with it automatically. Mm-hmm. One of my best friends in life, Dave bought and he uh, was a massive Metallica fan. His mum and dad had been over to San Francisco and met Metallica, went to see them and he gave me the, the Black Album on tape and, and that was it. The, rest the good was old days of tape, eh? Remember those? Okay, absolutely. Yeah. So that's where I kind of fell in love with it. Good, great. And what about singing? Where did the vocal thing start from? Well, that was it. So I walked into this room and there was two guitarists, a bass player and a drummer, and that was it. And they were playing Metallica songs. And I said to them, where's your singer? We don't have one. I said, well, I'll do it. So I grabbed the microphone and there was a little Fender amplifier and I started singing. Nice. And that's exactly where it came from. I didn't. I, I never had the confidence to do it, in, uh, or so I thought. And then 
I think once that genie was out the out the bottle, that was it. And so, had you sung for other bands before you joined with Jamie, or I sang uh, in a few bands when I was kind of like, so from about fifteen on to about twenty one, right? And then just through circumstances in life, I probably went maybe about fourteen years of not doing anything. I, one day I woke up and I just said, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to join a band. It was just fate because I just went on Gumtree and I saw this advert for looking for a, a singer. Oh, so you didn't actually know Jamie? This was a this was a reply to an advert. I'd never met Jamie or anybody, and wow. and literally he replied to me saying um, the, the current singer's last gig is actually at the Hug and Pint. Would you like to come along? So I came along and watched David Yates's last gig, and then met Jamie for the first time the following week. Went into the studio, sang a few songs. I think Seek and Destroy was the first one and I said right so same time next week and that was it. And that's how the magic began. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cool. Now just to move on to another wee subject that's dear to my heart, I'm a bit of a gear glutz guy. I love equipment. I've collected stuff. You're in my wee home studio at the moment but if you were to see the size of the barn where Kevin and I rehearse over in Barmore, I think you'd be mighty impressed with the amount of crap we've accumulated <laughs> over the years. But I would say nothing by comparison to your collection of guitars, Jamie. Uh, Last I saw was most impressive. Do you want to rhyme off a few of your classic favourites? Oh, well, I think the problem with the guitars is you get one and then you sell it and you get another one. Mm-hmm. So it's a kind of continual, continual thing. It's the same with amps, pedals, whatever. There's been a few guitars that have kind of come through my hands that have really kind of been a bit special. And I think for me, I've got a Gibson Les Paul 2005 Les Paul Custom that's very dear to my heart. Um, I've had that. At the beginning, it's been on all the records I've ever done. I played it, you know, it's been at a lot of the gigs, and it's just always been there. So that's a bit of a special one for me. I'm always amazed when I look at your Facebook page. There seems to be a new axe being wielded every single picture I see of you. So you've obviously got a few. And what about uh, amps and heads and stuff? You've got a few of them as well, as I recall. Yeah, over the years, my preference of amp has changed. I used to use Mesa Boogie quite a lot. Uh, again, you know, harking back to the kind of Metallica thing. It was actually Metallica and Limp Biscuit that used to use this specific Mesa Boogie dual rectifier head, and I thought I really liked it. Is that the one that's got the big valves on it that looks really cool, with the blue backlight on it? No, no, it's got uh, that kind of, I don't know what you call it, is it corrugated iron? Oh, yes. It's silver and it's kind of got that, it looks like tread plate. I used that for years and then I kind of changed, and the problem is that the guitar over the last 20 years in terms of live and recording has completely changed. I mean, traditionally you'd have your amplifier, plug it in and then you record it. But with the, the inclusion of like Kemper's, Axe FX, Helix, all these things, that you know, digital, you can now just have it set up and play. Now, I have used the Kemper and I used it to record a lot of things, but for me personally, nothing will ever beat standing in front of a guitar cab that's rattling you. I mean, I think any purist would agree with you there. There's nothing beats the analog uh, signal source for sure. And what about if your house is burning and you can only run in and save one pedal, one guitar and one amp, what would it be? Okay, that's a horrible question. (laughs) That's probably the worst question I've been asked in years. I can answer that as well, probably. Um, that's, That's a really, really hard one. I think probably what I would say is let me have a think. I think in terms of, right, pedal. So this is a cop-out. So my favorite pedal I've ever come across is a Hughes and Kettner Black Spirit 200. Now it looks like a pedal and it functions like a pedal, but it's actually an amp. 
Right. Like, but I'm going I'm I'm to put that under as a as a, as a as a pedal. It's a bit of a kind of Swiss Army knife. All right, okay. So it can do, you can get like nice chorus out of it, reverbs, nice heavy distortions, but it is technically a pedal. So let's go with that one. Amp, I'd probably go with, I, I'm a big fan of the JCM 800, which is the Marshall, the yeah. one that everybody used in the 80s. The one that, you know, if, if you look at any rock band in the 80s, a heavy metal band, they all use it. I love the JCM 800 sound brilliant quite heavy to be pulling out of a burning house though is it oh, <laughs> it's, oh I tell you what a JCM 800 is going to be one of the heaviest heads I was thinking that oh so heavy um, but you know it's brilliant I love it guitar oh I don't know including all your past ones so yeah. even ones you get rid of if there was one you could save I'm going to say two Okay. I'm going to go we'll two. Because we'll I, I don't think. I don't think. Right. Like I said, probably I would go with the, the Gibson, the Gibson Les Paul, because I've had it for so long. I, I love, enough. I love Les Pauls. But my other one would probably be. I, I've got a, a rare guitar. It's a, it's an ESP. It's a make ESP, Iron Cross. So it's it looks like a Les Paul, but it's an exact replica of one of the Metallica guitars, ah. down to the the, the absolute T. Um, there's only I think there's only a hundred of them in the world. Okay. So it's it's a quite so a rare, rare one. It's quite a rare one. Probably worth a few bob. Yeah, possibly, possibly. Just don't make sure you don't go on Google and type that in. Just don't do that. <laughs> okay. And speak to Bob. Bob. Yes. I mean, obviously, you don't have the huge list of equipment that Jamie has, but uh, no. you've, got, you, you've got quite a unique take on microphones. Uh, what is it you use in stage? So I use the uh, the Shure Super 55 Black Matte Elvis type microphone. That's the the one that I prefer. It looks great. It's almost like a sort of second person on stage with you. It's such an iconic shape and look about it, and it really suits you having it right up next to your gub and just shouting away into it. It's great. Yes. It looks brilliant. Yeah. It looks cool. It means people concentrate on my eyes being a bit more psychotic because I can't see my, my, my mouth swearing at people. So <laughs> What made you decide in one of them? Purely, very simply, um, Metallica used the same microphones. Right. So that's the only I'm reason I'm sensing a kind of theme here between you two guys. <laughs> there's, a, there's a definite theme of the mighty Metallica being a big influence in the two. Is that, is that the case with the whole band or is it just you two that have got the Metallica bug? It's quite funny, isn't it? Because I think everybody in the band likes Metallica. I think me and Jamie are probably the most obsessive about Metallica. The rest are a mixed bag in terms of Chris's, like, you know, Iron Maiden, a bit more classic 70s stuff. Right. Um, Mark's got a wide range of music that he likes, David Bowie up to Mastodon, and Stephen's a bit like that as well, the Mastodon type, you know, um, Rage Against the Machine stuff. I think for me, Metallica was a kind of gateway into heavy rock um, and heavy metal. I know I've kind of quoted a lot of kind of Metallica things. I mean, I'm a huge, I love Slayer. I love Slayer. I love Exodus. I love Motorhead. You know, these are bands that I just, that are so close to my heart. And quite big influences in your style of writing, would you say? Or I mean, obviously you've got the Metallica for the kind of heaviness, but Iron Maiden for the, the, the guitar harmonies come up quite a lot. X just to get that, that, that kind of violence on the guitar. Um, I really, really enjoy Slayer for the speed. Yeah, it's all that kind of stuff. So you both get a love for Metallica. What about, do you both share the love of the mighty brew? Absolutely. Absolutely. 1901. 1901 brew. <laughs> I mean, it's not as good as the original. But, but it's not bad. <laughs> but it's not bad. It's not bad. It's a bit more frothy. And Mickey D's, is that another band favourite? Well, I think if you ask any band uh, that goes on tour anywhere, surely they're going to like McDonald's. But they have to, I guess. There's not much option, is there? We do love McDonald's. And, uh, yeah. you know, and do you guys all hang out? You know, see out with the studio environment. Do you hang out at all? Or is it work one thing and then social life another? Or do you hang out and 
party or I would say we hang out as much as we possibly can some of you get families haven't you you've got kids I've got, haven't you? yeah I've got kids but when time allows uh-huh. I think the whole nature of Nocturne Wolf is very much a family like as soon as somebody's in the band and the current lineup at the moment to be fair it fe- really feels like it's like a it is a wolf pack it's basically like and, and we'll do anything for each other you know automatically and we do genuinely enjoy each other's company you know socially as well well that's great that's what you want the band isn't it really right well we'll be gabbing away for a wee while now let's have a listen to an R&B track I think we're going to go for Necro Dancer next do you want nice. to just tell us a wee bit about this so this all came about from a Disney short a Disney yes you did hear that right of a dancing skeleton and I remember watching it thinking, that looks really creepy and weird. It was one of these sort of 1940s, 30s, 50s, around about then, uh, short. And I thought, that's really, really horrible. It's, it's weird. He's like a, a necro dancer. I thought, oh, he's a necro dancer. That sounds so cool. And then it, it, it all evolved <laughs> from there. So it's not about a specific story. I just thought, that, that'd be really cool, this scary thing. So that's what necro dancer is. Okay, well, let's check it out now. Here's Necrodancer. Yeah. 
Well, that was Necro Dancer. That kicked ass, lads. Nice one. Thank you. Just going to change the subject a wee bit again, move on to the next section of the podcast where we're going to talk about recording and how you guys go about it. So I remember a few years ago, you asked me if I would mind coming in and recording you guys. At the time, I only had my Mac and a Duet SIM card and a couple of mics. So we were quite limited to what we could do and we had to multi-track it. We didn't do it live. We did each track at a time, which proved to be a wee bit difficult getting the drums right with Michelle and remember trying to get you mic'd up properly with guitar, but also that didn't bleed through to the drums. It was all a bit of a carry on, but um, it was all part of a learning curve. It was certainly the first time I'd ever tried to do anything like that. So it was great for me. How did you find that whole experience? I think considering we did three full songs, start to finish, drums, bass, guitar, and vocal with overdubs in a day was pretty monumental. It was, it was quite an effort, wasn't it? It was, it was a good effort. It was a long day. <laughs> it was a long day and then... Um, we started early and we finished late. Yeah, uh, but I think that for us, we were at a stage in the band where we didn't have anything to show off. So you turn up to venues and say, oh, we'd love to, to get a gig here. And they'll say, well, have you got something to show? And you say no. And then they say, well, no, you're not playing a gig. We don't know what you're like. Can you actually play together? Is it just going to be a shambles? So that was when... I'd asked yourself, and I think you kind of thought, hmm, this is kind of interesting, actually. Well, it was certainly a challenge. I mean, obviously, I worked at Radio Clyde for a long time, and part of my job there was to record the bands for the live uh, inserts into Clyde 2 on a Sunday night. But it was a very different kettle of fish there. I mean, Clyde have got a fully kitted out studio, you know, all bells and whistles. And so this was a whole different kettle of fish to me. But nevertheless, it was a great learning tool, and I'm glad we did it. But that obviously gave you a bit of encouragement to go on and try bigger and better things. So how did you progress from there? So once that had been put out, it was really good because we could sit and listen to it and think about, oh, right, oh, well, what are we going to do? How are we going to do this different live? And what will we learn from it? And where are we going to go with it after that? And I think what we really found was that because we could send that out to venues, we could then start to meet other bands because at that point we didn't really know the scene that well yeah and it meant that we could then start writing other songs and then thinking right what we're going to do we've got these three songs how are we going to progress onto another level and i think that with the way that technology was going and at the time when chris came into the band he was really really into doing his home recordings so we'd kind of talked about maybe do like a, a 10 tracks in-house and we kind of hemmed and hawed and thought, you know, I think we'll do this. Now that was actually, I know 10 tracks doesn't sound much, but it took us about a year. Well, yeah, 10 tracks, especially at home recording. And I take it you were, were you doing it individually or were you doing it together? When it came to the guitars, it was basically a case of, I would go up to his house and I would record, go through, right, first song, second song, third song, and just go through the full thing. The problem was we decided for some unknown reason, that we were going to make two guitar tracks on the left and two guitar tracks on the right for rhythm to thicken it up. But after doing that, it didn't sound right. 
so we ended up having to re-record quite a lot of it because it just it didn't seem to I don't know whether or not it was maybe our, our mixing capability wasn't great or we weren't picking the right sounds so we actually got about halfway through the album and thought this doesn't sound right so that put us back a lot and ended up going with two tracks, left and right rhythm. And that's all part of the learning curve. I mean, I yeah. remember going back to when we did our recession and you said to me when you were doing your rhythm tracks and you wanted to multi-track them and you did the first one and it was so fast and you said, right, can we do another one? And I'll just do the same thing again. I thought to myself, there's absolutely no way you're going to manage to do that exact same pace and notage. And he said, yeah, well, and hats off to you. You proved me wrong, not once, not twice, but I think three or four times, actually. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I thought that worked quite well, but I don't know, maybe like you say, it could be in the recording technique or the mixing. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you thought that I was uh, that, that it went well enough that it was actually an OK job, because it's, it's always fun recording rhythm guitars. And when I say fun, I mean horrific. <laughs> <laughs> I find it really stressful. I very rarely will hear a take and think that is 100% perfect. I can always hear a scuff or something, or I'm very overcritical of it. A true it. perfectionist. I, I don't enjoy hearing my own guitar. I don't like it. No one really likes hearing themselves, so we go, oh, that could be better, I could be doing this better. I mean, I'm saying the keyboards, you know, that's your craft. You want it to be as good as you can be. Mm -hmm. So you were recording on what? Were you using Cubase or Pro Tools, or what was your DAW of choice? So, it was Pro Tools. Oh, very fancy. But, <laughs> but, and this this is maybe where part of the, the disaster was, it was Pro Tools Light Edition. Ah, the free one. So the free one. So it meant that we got the total of having 16 tracks. Yeah. So you can imagine when you've got a drum kit and you've got all these different guitar parts and vocals, it, there was a lot of bouncing going, yeah. going on. Um, what, the way that we approached it is we recorded the drums mixed the drums and then exported that as one single a WAV file uh, like a WAV yeah. put that on and then had to mix everything on top of that yeah. which was just yeah. awful yeah it's definitely not I mean I know if you're limited to tracks that's what you've got to do but it's always nice to have each drum on an individual channel because especially as the song progresses and morphs into whatever it becomes sometimes that tom that sounded great in the original mix is now sticking out like a sore thumb you think oh, I wish I could just turn that bugger down but you can't if you bounce it it's a bugger I know yeah. been there <laughs> so you also went on to do some proper studio work as well whereabouts did you go for that kind of stuff so the vocals for the album were recorded at Audio Lounge in Maryhill and that was my first uh, ever attempt at recording. So when Jamie says that recording guitars is stressful, I found recording vocals very, very stressful. I bet. There was no window to look at where the, the producer was and where the guys was. But I could hear them in my headphones. Laughing hysterically. <laughs> That's your fear, isn't it? Are they laughing at me? <laughs> Basically saying, um, I think you could do that one a little bit better, Bob. And I'm like, oh, do you think so, do you? <laughs> Come through and give it a go yourself. <laughs> there was some uh, quite funny uh, outtakes that are in archive somewhere of me losing the plot, basically. <laughs> Tremendous. I think it was, it was interesting for you because I think it was the first time you'd probably been in a recording studio. Is that right, Bob? That was my first time ever uh, yeah, doing recording, so it was all brand new to me. And uh, it was a, a great foundation um, because I learnt a lot, um, obviously, for the future. Hearing back to your, what you actually did, I think most musicians probably do this, but you hear things and you go, oh, I wish I could ch change well, that. That's or just do what that we were saying a moment you know? ago. That's, yeah. uh, everyone does that. Yeah. I, I, I don't know anyone that goes, oh, I am brilliant. I made no mistakes there whatsoever. Yeah. Happens all the time. Mm -hmm. And so was that your only studio sessions or did you go anywhere else or, or has that been your go-to 
studio guy. So for the album NW, as Bob was saying, uh, vocals, drums were done there. We took those tracks and then took them to uh, Chris's house, who he then mixed them and, and masked them. So that was the only time we used the studio. Everything else was done with a Kemper interface amp uh, to record the guitars and bass, which in some ways is great. The convenience is amazing, but depends what you're really wanting out of your recording, I yeah, suppose. Yeah. I mean, you guys strike me primarily as your main objective seems to be your live work. That's certainly where you shine. I'm not suggesting your albums are not great, but you all seem to really enjoy the live aspects of it all. Yeah. Uh, would I be right in saying that? Or am I being assumptuous here? No, I think you're correct. One thing I would definitely change if I could was the, you know, the, the energy and the kind of grittiness in, the, in my voice when we're doing live shows wasn't on the album. Certain parts of it, it was very clean and it was very melodic. Yeah. I wish I had uh, done it the you know the way that I would normally do it live, you know, which is completely different. I mean, I guess the energy is different in this studio, isn't it? You don't have the crowd looking at you. You don't have that kind of raw energy flowing about you. You're just in a, like you say, in a box room with no window and uh, you're sort of by yourself. It's difficult to get that enthusiasm and drive that you would have if you're up on the stage leaping about like a maddie. I, I mean, I totally get that. Obviously, when you've done your uh, sound check or your line check and everything's great, and then when you actually go and start playing live and you can't hear anything so you literally have you have to shout uh, otherwise you don't you don't know what's going on you know <laughs> so i mean speaking about the live i mean obviously like we're saying that's a big part for you guys you know live performing you're all over glasgow in fact you're all over scotland you did a tour before the whole covid thing kicked off how did you find touring do you mean in general or just in not, scotland oh, or just in general i mean do you like that whole on the road thing or is it all a bit of a just got to get this done to get ourselves a bit of street cred or do you actually enjoy going out on the road and doing it? I think that probably as Bob and probably yourself have said, I think that Nocturne Wolf as an entity are a live band and that's no disrespect to us doing things in the studio. Yeah. I think, you know, we like doing the studio stuff but when it comes to live that's where we're really at home. Is, I think that's fair to say, Bob. Yeah, I would say that the, yeah. Very similar to Metallica in that way. <laughs> you, you'll, you'll notice that keeps coming up. Just like Exodus. Yeah, yes. just like Exodus. Let's say Exodus for a different band. No, I think there's a lot of a lot of uh, adrenaline, a lot of enthusiasm comes out in our, our live performance. And what would you say was your favourite? I mean, you obviously played quite a few venues. Where did you go down the best? Do you think are you best in your home turf, or did you go down well elsewhere on the tour? Um, well, I'll say my favourite uh, gig and then Bob can say his favourite gig um, okay. because they'll definitely be different. Um, so I think that probably for me, well, i tell you what, the standout gigs for me were the first time we played at King Tut's. So I remember being 16 and hearing that there was a band a couple of years old than me in school had played at King Tut's or were playing in King Tut's. And for me, I just thought that is the, the absolute pinnacle of being in a band. You know, one day I would love to play there. and. I remember that summer when I played at King Tut's, I just couldn't believe it. I mean, I was absolutely blown away. As it turns out, I don't know if all other bands feel this way, but it was well, just I me. Actually, I played there once as a guest, oh. as, well, not, not with my band, but as a guest keyboard player for a band called Angel Heart. And uh, it was, uh, it, yeah, it was amazing because they had a huge audience following. So the place was rammed. I've never been so shit scared in my life, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> terrified. And then, you know, I didn't really know their music and I was just filling in with samples and sound effects, basically. Okay. And then the guitarist guy came to me and said, listen, we're going to nip off for five minutes. Can you just hold the audience with 
various weird sound effects and I'm like uh, yeah okay so I had like <laughs> elephants chanting and uh, you know UFOs <laughs> flying over and all that lots of weird shit and then the band came back out butt naked all of them, the whole band came out bollock naked and finished their second half of their sets. Uh, much to the crowds, I mean, they went absolutely ballistic. And we, it got to page three in the Scottish Sun the next day. So it was, uh, it was that, that was my one experience of uh, playing at King Tut. Well, I mean, it's a great venue, that and that sounds like you had a great time, <laughs> great you know. And uh, yeah. now that's fantastic. Uh, but what I would say is taking that away, um, the gig that actually probably stood out for me was. The, our second last gig we played before COVID, um, which would have been the 14th of March 2020. So that mean that was what a week week before lockdown, we played in Newcastle in Trillions, and it was just a fantastic gig. Looking back hindsight, having 200 people stuffed in a tiny little pub a week before lockdown, maybe not the best not idea. Not the best idea. Um, but you weren't to know. But we didn't really know. I mean, I think at the time we were like, oh, is this gig going to go ahead? Will people turn up? And then we walked in and the place was completely rammed. And I thought, well, obviously not that many people are really that bothered about this yeah, then. Yeah. <laughs> um, so for me, that was a great gig. I really, yeah. really enjoyed that. What about you, Bob? A couple, they both Glasgow, to be fair. The, um, the played King Tut's for the third time. Yeah, third time. And we were headlining. Yeah, well, actually, it gets better because we were headlining it, and there was quite a big crowd. And yeah, it was—I don't know what it was about it, but um, I was—I was quite hyped up for it, and we, we put on quite a show, to be fair. And then the next one was the second last night of our first tour. Was at the Classic Grand in Glasgow. Oh, that's one of my favourite venues. I saw a skinny puppy there. Love oh, it. And it was absolutely, honestly, it was so good. There was, I mean, we were loud. There was a lot of energy. I literally lost my voice from the three nights before. And it was the first time the crowd had actually started moshing and pushing and thrashing. And the last two or three songs, they just went mental. And I was just, when I watch back the video now, I'm just standing there with a psychotic smile on my face, just saying, I love this. I actually wish I was out there doing it with them. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. People hanging from rafters, yes, literally. Literally, it was yes, crazy. It literally. was crazy. Excellent. So, and what would you say was your favourite live song to perform? What's the one that you think? Yeah, this is the best song we do live. It's a strange one because um, I, I literally don't have a favourite Nocturne Wolf song. I, I literally love all of them. Going back to the, your recordings, like um, I remember seeing the Gumtree ad and I for the singer, and I listened to the tracks, and I was lying in my bed and I listened to it, and I just fell in love with it straight away. Um, it was just right up my street, you know, so I don't really have a favourite one, but when we play the Druid, um, because it's got such a, a clean element to it, it's uh, really changing the, the dynamic. One, yeah, so it changes the whole dynamic of the, of the actual set, mm. um, and that seems to go down really well. And Silver Hand, I love playing that. I just think that there are certain elements of Jamie's songwriting where he puts stops in and they've got such an impact. It's like like there's no music, but it, it actually having that that break in the yeah, song, absolutely. it just it's superb. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so I love playing those. What about you, Jamie? I really enjoy playing Troll Hunter, um, which was our last single because probably because it's the shortest song. <laughs> so it means that you, you know you think oh I could only need to play this for two and a half minutes or something like that, or if we're playing really fast maybe. Maybe two minutes. <laughs> so um, yeah, it's, it's, I think that's a good, it's a good thrashy one. Well, that's handy because that's just what we're going to lead into now. Did you know that? Did I tell you that was next in the playlist? Absolutely not. No way. <laughs> <laughs> nice segue. You should be in radio, man. Uh, anyway, okay. So here's a bit of Troll Hunter. 
Okay, now that was Troll Hunter. That's a nice bit of an aggressive groove there, dudes. I love that <laughs> as well. These have been really great tracks tonight. Really enjoy listening to them. Um, so, just moving on, what's, uh, what's next for the Wolfpack? So, we have recorded a handful of new tracks. Slightly different to our old stuff, but still in the same vein. We've never played them on a live stream, we've never played them live. Um, these are completely brand new songs that we went to, through to Edinburgh to record with Brian Ramage, um, who plays in the band Ramage Inc. So it was interesting to go and record with him because he actually did some producing. So it wasn't a case of he sat and pressed record yeah. and we recorded and then he went, that's fine. Uh-huh. So he actually got involved uh, and said, right, you're going to have to maybe change this bit or change that bit or kind of spice and it up. And how did you find that? Was that, you know, Did you find that intrusive or did you think it was a benefit to have someone else say, change things? Or did you think, hey, wait a minute, mate, this is our band, sharp. I went under the, the guise that if he was going to say, do this or do that, I was going to say no. But I kind of opened my mind to it and I saw the process of because the vocals were done last, so I'd seen all the layers getting built and I saw the benefit that he was more suggesting that if you try this or if you try that. So we came in with three specific tracks that we'd nailed in the studio and we could play it with our eyes closed. And all of a sudden he said, I think this would sound better if this was like this or if this was like that. And when I heard it, I went, no, you're absolutely right. And it just opened, it made me a little more open-minded to having that influence in there. He was very hard, you know, he wasn't like, he didn't ferry around anything. It was basically like, no, I think this is good or this is bad. Well, that's a sign of a good producer, to be honest, someone that can step up and actually, you know, make a difference to your sound. And when are we going to be hearing these? Are they far away from being released? Or have you any idea of mm, time know. scale? Or? I'm not actually sure. I think Bob probably knows better than I, than I do. I suppose in these COVID times, they're not actually far away at all, really. I'll be looking at six to eight weeks, I would say, for the first track to be coming out. We've just went through a little bit of a transition with uh, a change of management. So we were with Reaction Management and we are now with Forge Amp with a guy called John Craig who runs the company. He's based down in in Liverpool. He's uh, from Ayrshire originally, he's a, he's a Scotsman and he's been down in Liverpool for 30 years and he's got a lot of bands already on his roster, hard rock, kind of heavy metal. We've signed up with him now so that's going to give us a lot more opportunities for um, gigs and, and down, down over the border. Well you heard it here first music fans, new Nocturne Wolf tracks out in six to eight weeks so that's exciting news for all the fans I'm sure. So the band's obviously, you know, pretty much tight now. You've been playing for ages. Have you any, you know, ideas of maybe increasing the size of the band, introducing other musicians, perhaps bringing in a cool synth player? Oh, a synth player? So I think we'll end up being maybe like Nine Inch Nails. <laughs> or Hawkwind. <laughs> or Hawkwind <or> <laughs> also works. Um, certainly not something that comes to the forefront of my mind. Um, but Booze but... on the crowd. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, actually. Um, over the last couple of weeks, I have actually been listening to a bit of Nine Inch Nails. And whenever I hear a synth now, wherever it is, if it's on the radio, if it's on, on anything, I, I straightway think of you. I think, wonder what Stuart would think of this. Well, I know you're not Gary Newman's fans, but he's just released a new album called Intruder. I know, uh, I, I listened to uh, it. Which is, I mean, I don't know what you think, I think it's absolutely phenomenal. It's yeah. very Nine Inch Nailsy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can obviously tell that Aid Fenton, the producer who used to be with Nails, is very heavily involved in it all because it just, I mean, apart from the vocal, you could think that was a Nine Inch Nails record. But it's great though, love it. A, a big influence for me has actually always been Rammstein. Oh, really? Um, mm. And I know that might kind of sound a bit strange, but I, I'm a huge fan of the way that they produce their music. Uh-huh. 
uh, heavily layering of, of guitars, but also putting in the synth. Um, sometimes it's the lead instrument, sometimes it's a kind of supporting instrument. Um, it's really, really cool. Um, I really like it. I think it's a good. I think Ramstein might be a good blend between you know my love of heavy metal and your love of synth. Indeed, is indeed that, is that, is. Is yeah, that yeah, halfway? Yeah, medium? yeah. No, I would agree. I say that's about right. So listen, time's marching on. So we're just going to finish things off now with my favourite track of yours from our first session that we recorded at Hell's Heart. The minute I heard this, I thought, my God, these guys are actually a hell of a lot better than I had ever thought of. I mean, Jamie had talked to me about playing music before and. He didn't have a recording, so I'd never heard what he did, so I really didn't know what to expect. But this song in particular blew me away. So tell us a bit about Hell's Heart before we trigger it. <laughs> so Hell's Heart, I Stab at Thee, is uh, the line from Moby Dick, when uh, obviously he goes to uh, attack the, the, the whale. And I thought, that's a really, really cool line. How can we put this into a song? So the whole thing was built around this, but unfortunately, it became less about Moby Dick and more about this massive, big, mythical demon leviathan from the depths, which is fine. That, that's cool. Um, and as usual, these things twist and turn. So it's basically about a massive, big, evil water monster thing. Big, evil water monster it is. Here it comes now.
So that was Hell's Heart, another classic metal number from the boys. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed that again. We're kind of coming to end the podcast now. I'd just like to ask, you know, now that you've had time to bond as a band, do you think this is the lineup you're going to be sticking with? Is this the way it's going to be? Is this the new Wolf Pack? Yeah, this. Uh, yeah, nobody's allowed to leave now, so this is it. This is us settled for uh, for good. No, I, I genuinely feel the uh, the lineup at the moment is as strong as as I've uh, been involved with. And like I said earlier, we've, we all get on really well and we're all just very excited to get back out and show everybody what we can do. Is everyone of the same mindset? Is everyone committed? Is everyone going, right, let's do this, we're going to rock it once we get out of this COVID carry-on? The one thing I really love at the moment is literally everybody's on the same page. We're, there's there's no uh, there's nothing to worry about, you know, touch wood. It's yeah. everybody's on the same page, everybody's on the same drive. It's let's get back out there and show them what we can do. Well, that's good to hear, and I, for one, can't wait to uh, to see what you guys come up with in the future. Thank you. I think in terms of, if you look at the, the way that Nocturnal is at the moment, one thing I would say is that we've been really fortunate, or certainly I've been very fortunate, that anyone who's come in and out of Nocturnal Wolf have all been really, really great musicians, and it's been inspiring to see what people have brought to the fold. But I think with COVID and everything at the moment, just to kind of consolidate what Bob said, I think that the the people who are involved at the moment, and you know, absolutely no disrespect to anyone who came before, but I do feel that this is a really tight unit. Um, it's really good, and I'm really, really enjoying it. Well, it certainly sounds as if you're all fully on board and engaged with each other. So, yeah, good luck to you all. Thanks so much for joining me tonight. Thank, Thank you. you. And just before we go, Jamie, uh, when are we going to get a game of Talisman? Oh, anytime. When, when do you want to do one? I mean, this is something that maybe your your, uh, <laughs> your fans don't know. Jamie and I are big, big fans of a game called Talisman, which is a board game that I've played since I was 16 years old, which I find hard to believe, and that's like... 35 years ago or something it's incredible and we're still playing it I still enjoy a long evening of adventuring and casting spells and slaughtering each other with <laughs> vicious weapons but obviously missed it through the whole Covid oh. time uh, luckily there was that digital version um, which you joined well. us once but really looking forward to getting another game with you you and Big Gall oh absolutely I think my uh, my parting words there were uh, please just don't turn me into a toad 
<laughs> well, listen, guys, thanks very much. It's been terrific having you. You've been great guests, and I wish you all the best and the best of luck with your uh, upcoming musical adventures. Thanks again. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Brilliant. Right. Cheers, boys. Cheers. Cheers. A blood black nothingness and dreadfully distinct against the dark. Recite your bass line. We're done.